tonight. Here we go. Are you ready? Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel 25. And I'll remind you that last time we left off with Saul's recognition that David was indeed going to be king over Israel. And he made the request that Jonathan had made earlier. And that was that David not cut off the descendants of Saul and therefore destroy his family name. Now, back in chapter 15, 28, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Boy, talk about an insult. But it was true, and David had just proven this to be true in our previous chapter, in that he had Saul in the crosshairs, so to speak, or dead to rights, or whatever cliche you want to associate it with. And he could have easily killed Saul. But not only would he not do so, stating that he had no right to do such a thing to the Lord's anointed, he also restrained his men from killing Saul, who were also on the run from Saul, who also wanted to slay them as he did David. Now, our chapter tonight is an opportunity for us in that it's going to present another one of the great men of faith, one of the great characters of Scripture in his humanity and in his uh, warts and fa- uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Warts and all, I guess, is the phrase we would use. But it's an opportunity for us to remember that the Bible, it foibles, that's what I was going to say, that the Bible is faithful to present the failures of the great men and women of Scripture and not just their victories. And I think we recognize that there are a select few that the Scripture has nothing negative to say about, men like Joseph, women like Deborah, (coughs) men like Daniel and Nehemiah, and of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus, but... It isn't because they didn't have any failures. The Bible just doesn't record them for us. And all of those of whom the Bible has nothing negative to report are still part of the all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God camp because we have all sinned at one time or another, maybe even today. (laughs) Now, we mentioned in chapter 21 and 22 that when David let his flesh get the best of him, the consequences were grave. He allowed the natural human desire for self-preservation and protection to compromise his moral standards. And the end result was, is that a priestly family and all of their relatives and the inhabitants of their city of Nob were killed by Saul because David had lied to Ahimelech. And Saul thought Ahimelech had sided with David because of David's lie. Now, in our chapter tonight, we're going to find David battling another natural human tendency of our flesh. And this time the tragedy is uh, uh, averted, I should say, by the intervention of a woman who the Bible is going to tell us is a very wise woman as she interrupted David's response to the actions of her very foolish husband. Now, to send us toward our title tonight, Remembering Galatians 5, 16 to 17 gives us a contrast of the fruits of the flesh or the works of the flesh and the fruits of the spirit. And we'll start with what Paul admonishes the church in Galatia to do in 16 and 17, where he says, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. Can anyone say amen to that? 
so that you do not do the things that you wish. And then later we're told about the fruits of the Spirit in 22 of 23 and 23 of the same chapter, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Say the next one out loud. Self-control. Against such, there is no law. Now, in our chapter tonight, David was about to do something he shouldn't. And his flesh was warring against the spirit, even though the spirit had just conquered the will of the flesh, so to speak, in the cave at En Gedi, where David spared Saul's life. Now, we don't know how much time has elapsed between chapter 24 and 25, and there's nothing to indicate or give us a time stamp as to how far down the line we are uh, time-wise. But what we do know is that the man after God's own heart did what was right before God. And the next thing we see is he is about to do what satisfied his flesh's desire for revenge. So we have one man facing two similar situations with two different reactions. And that's going to expose for us the battle that we all face and the desire to respond in the flesh to some of the things we encounter. And the war of the flesh and the spirit reminds us, and we've got kind of a different title tonight, but I think you'll find it to be appropriate as we make our way through 44 verses tonight. But our title is, Whenever We Have a Battle of Flesh versus Spirit, There is Always Going to Be, and here's our title, A Winner Every Time. A Winner Every Time is our title. And the fact is, when faced with difficult circumstances and opposition, we find ourselves in those two choices or in the need of making a choice, either to walk in the spirit or wallow in the flesh. And every difficulty is going to wind up with one of those two features of our humanity and our spiritual rebirth, battling against one another. And in every situation, there is a winner every time and in every circumstances. So, as I mentioned, we have a big chapter, four stops to make in it. So let's jump in and see how to make Walking in the Spirit, our choice, every time through four points of recognition. So, would you stand with me tonight and read 1 Samuel chapter 25. We'll start in verses 1 through 13. 1 Samuel 25, 1. Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. Now, when David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. 
So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men when I do not know where they're from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. You may be seated. Now, the first thing to take note of is in our opening verse, as Israel is now transitioned fully from the era of the judges to the era of the kings. Yet, there is barely a mention of one of the great men of Scripture at the moment of his death. All we're told is Samuel died, Israel did what was proper for the occasion and lamented for him. Then Samuel was buried in his hometown of Ramah. Then David takes center stage and will for the balance of this book and uh, on into Second Samuel. And we're told that he left the caves of Engedi. And he went to the wilderness area north of the Sinai, where the children of Israel wandered for some 40 years. And the reason was to put distance between he and his men and Saul. Now, it was there that David and his men encountered this man, we're told, was a very wealthy man. For at that time, uh, wealth was measured at least in part by livestock. And we see that he had two rather large herds. He lived in Maon. And he had taken his sheep for shearing at Carmel. Now, this is not Mount Carmel, where the famous incident between Elijah and the prophets of Baal took place. Now, we're told this man's name was Nabal. Now, it's kind of interesting because directly translated, what his name means is dolt. And I think we all have a general idea what a dolt is. And I had a general idea, but I thought I ought to look it up and see exactly what it means. And a dolt is defined as stupid or a blockhead. And I think we'll find that blockhead is an appropriate name for Nabal indeed. Abigail, in contrast, her name means the source of joy. And she was the opposite of her husband in that she was both of good understanding and she was beautiful, while her husband was a harsh, evil blockhead. Now, in thinking about this, I thought, well, this was obviously an arranged marriage. I don't know why Abigail would pick such a man as her husband. Now, the time of the shearing was traditionally an occasion for a feast. And when the shearing was all done, there would be a great celebration. And therefore, David had his young men go and seek after a blessing from Nabal for the actions that they had taken, even though those actions weren't that of a contract between David and Nabal. They took it upon themselves, or David did, to protect the shepherds of Nabal from bandits who were commonly present at such an event and scene. And because of their presence, during the time of shearing, David gave testimony. They didn't lose one sheep, and they were fully protected from the bandits who would often frequent these events. Now, even though no official agreement had been made between David and Nabal, David took it upon himself to do what was right on behalf of those in close proximity to him. He protected the men, 
the shearers and the shepherds. He protected their uh, provision, their supplies. He protected also their goods, the sheep and the goats. After all, David and his men were soldiers. It was a business they were in, so to speak. He then sends 10 of his own young men with a warm greeting to Nabal to ask if he might return the favor, Nabal that is, and include David and his men in the customary feast time at the end of the shearing and provide his men with whatever Nabal saw fit to give for them for the services rendered, even though they were unsolicited services. Now Nabal says, who's David that I should listen to him? Who's the son of Jesse? And then he accuses David of betraying Saul when actually the truth was it was in reverse, at least at the betrayal that happened. He accuses him of being just a servant who broke away from his master like many do. And then he asks, why should I take my bread, my water, and my meat from my shears and give it to you? Or give it to men I don't know where they're from. Now Proverbs 17, 12 to 13 gives us a good overview of this man and dealing with such a person, where the proverb says, let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. Whoever rewards evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. And we're going to see that play out here in our text tonight. Now, Nabal made some serious errors, proving he was worthy of his name. Now, remember, Nabal was an Israelite, and he was among the people whom God had given his law. And his law included this reminder from Deuteronomy 8.18. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Yet, concerning his possessions, Nabal kept saying, my, my, my. And there's about to be uh, consequences for uh, this particular position in his, in his own thoughts. And we can think back even to Nebuchadnezzar when he had been told that he needed to give glory to the God of heaven who had blessed him with the powerful nation that Babylon was at the time. And then Nebuchadnezzar later is looking out over the empire and he says, look at all that my hand has made. And instantly there were consequences and he was driven uh, into the woods, so to speak, as a madman and uh, spent seven years there. Now, at hearing the words of Nabal, We're told that the men turned on their heels, the young men, that is, and they reported to David who uh, all that Nabal said. Now, David replies instantly to the men, and I'm going to put this up into our understanding and language today. Basically, he tells the guys, lock and load, boys. We're going to go take care of this blockhead. And he very wisely leaves behind 200 men with the gear to protect it from the same robbers who would have pillaged it had they had the opportunity also with the share, uh, sheep and the shearers. Now, our point tonight, our first of four, comes from the contrast between verses 6 and 7 and verse 13. In 6 and 7, David sends a very warm and respectful greeting to Nabal. And then he says in verse 13, after he hears his reply, gird up your sword, swords, men. We're going to do some damage to this man's household. And we'll see exactly what that was in a few moments. 
Now, here's our first takeaway, kind of as a point of recognition and a word of warning about how quickly we all can get in the flesh, even as we see David does here. And it's just a reminder for us and something to be aware of when we're faced with the decision as to what's going to win in our situation, whether it be the flesh or walking in the spirit. And here's our first point. Listen, one of the enemy's primary means of luring us into the flesh is disrespect. One of the enemy's primary means of luring us into the flesh is disrespect. Now, again, David did not contract his services with Nabal, and Nabal was not legally obligated to David for a debt incurred. But he showed himself to be worthy of his name because he simply didn't exercise a common courtesy, even though he was a man of great wealth. The future king of Israel, which was known by most in the country, believed by and supported by his wife, as we'll see in a few moments, had just protected his own men from any loss incurred at a time where losses were not only common, but they were a given during the shearing season. Now, as far as David goes, he should have thought, this guy's a blockhead and just moved on. He just spared the life of a man who tried to kill him three times that we know of and had relentlessly pursued him and his men and hunted him like an animal. Yet this guy refused to give David and his men provisions because of his greed and arrogance. And David's response, having just spared Saul, however long ago it was, as I mentioned, he says, gird your sword, men. We're going to kill all the males in Nabal's household. And that's what verse 22 and 34 tells us. Now, we need to remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the what? The merciful. Why? For they shall obtain mercy. Now, here's something we need to recognize. We'll talk about this more fully in a few moments. Being merciful is not something we slip in and out of. It is not circumstance related or deservedness related. And that's what David does here. He's merciful to Saul, and now he's going to gird his sword and not just kill Nabal. He's going to kill all his sons, too. Now, as far as personal application goes, I think we can make these points. Anybody ever work for a disrespectful boss? There's a lot of this will happen right away. Now, when someone is disrespectful and condescending to us or demeaning to us, what's our flesh want to do? talk behind their back, disparage their name, say things about them with other co-workers. When someone is disrespectful and condescending to us about our faith, our flesh wants to just write them off or refuse or never even think about praying for them. When someone is disrespectful to our family, our flesh wants to lock and load like David says here. Now, one thing we need to pause and make the point of is that there is a difference between self-defense and retaliation. This isn't self-defense in David's case. This is just revenge. This is retaliation because Nabal had disrespected David and David was instantly in the flesh. David wanted revenge and thus he was in the flesh and being disrespected is what got him there immediately. So when we battle the war of the spirit and flesh, there's going to be a winner every time. One of the two in us is going to win. And we can choose the spirit to walk in the spirit, I should say, even when disrespected or repaid with evil for the good that we have done. Somebody say, now look at 14 to 24. 
Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by day or night and day. All the time we were, uh, we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste, took two hundred loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, one hundred clusters of raisin, and two hundred cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, Go on before me. See, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was that she rode on the donkey that she went down under cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met him. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. Please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, I think we've all probably had a moment in life where we felt like we've seen it all and nothing is going to surprise us anymore. And I certainly have felt that way and thought I'd seen and heard it all as it pertains to the bizarre and surprising until I studied for this message. I have to say, I was rather shocked at one of the things I read. And basically what it was is that one of the commentators who I read almost every week for every study that we're going to have said Abigail was in sin. And she sinned against the Lord by betraying her husband, first by talking behind his back with this young man, and secondly, acting behind his back to spare the lives of the men in her own family. Now... I was going to tell you tonight that that's the stupidest thing I've ever read, but I can't say that because I'm sure that something stupider is going to come along at some point. When we think we've heard and seen it all, something else comes along. Now, this is a wise and discerning young man, and he reports the exchange between David's young men and the blockhead as he recounts to Abigail. All that David and his men had done for the shepherd, the shears, and thus Nabal. He encourages Abigail to do something to avert what's about to happen because evil is surely about to come. And Nabal is such a scoundrel that he can't be reasoned with like you would a normal person. So Abigail responds to David's request. She prepares what would now be a peace offering, which should have been a thank offering, And tells her servants, get going and I'm going to come behind you. Now again, speaking of Nabal, we could consider Proverbs 11.29. It says, he who troubles his own house will inherit the wind and the fool will be a servant to the wise of heart. 
Now, I don't think we need to say a whole lot after what we just read to draw a contrast between Nabal and Abigail. He brought trouble to his own house by his insults and arrogance, and he was about to reap what he had sown as David and his men were en route to retaliate. Yet Abigail rides toward David and his men behind a hillside, and then as she begins and rounds the corner to descend, she encounters David and his men girded with swords. Now, verse 21 and 22 gave us a bit of a glimpse as to what was going on in David's mind about Nabal, and that Nabal repaid his good with evil, and David was going to repay Nabal's household with death. Now, then we're told when Abigail sees David, she dismounts, makes an appeal to David to transfer guilt from Nabal to herself. And the reason she did this is she knew that David, as any gentleman in the day, would not be harsh in dealing with her like he would be with her husband or another man. She respectfully asked David if she may speak to him concerning the matter. And then she goes a step further and asks that he would agree to listen. And Abigail's respectful request gives us an opportunity and an insight on how to pick the winner of the battle between flesh and spirit in our own situations and those situations that often cause us to do things that we didn't want to do. Now, here's our next point of application. Listen, it's just, again, a a recognition. Our first reactions to insults is usually of the flesh. Our first reaction to insults is usually of the flesh. Now, there's a pause here in what's going to happen, and Abigail interrupts what David had intended to do. I'm quite sure that we have some super saints in the room here among us, and uh, I believe the ninth commandment is still in order. Thou shalt not lie or bear false witness. So I have to tell you, my initial reaction to being attacked, betrayed, or lied about is not usually instantly, oh, the poor dear wandering soul. That's not usually what I think. And I'm sure I have some company with me here tonight. My first response is usually, what a blockhead. Can anybody say amen to that? Now, I want you to think about what Joseph went through with his betrayal from his own household, his own jealous brothers. He was sold to an Ishmaelite slave trader. He was falsely accused of a sexual crime that landed him in prison for over two years. And after many years, he comes face to face with his brothers. First, there's a set of messengers that are communicating with Joseph in this text we're going to read. And then he says this to his brothers directly. In Genesis 50, 17 to 21, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And they said, behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, that's right. And don't you ever forget it. (laughs) Joseph said, what? Do not be afraid. For am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, here's what happened in our chapter. 
Abigail interrupted the fleshly response of David by asking him to hear her out. And we need to do the same thing when our situations of being insulted or betrayed or disrespected come our way. Because between the reaction of the flesh and the response of the spirit is a decision that needs to be inserted at that point in time. Because every time there's going to be a winner. So we need to take our time. Make our decision when betrayed, belittled, insulted, and falsely accused to decide that the emotions of the moment are not going to dictate our response as it does here with David. Now, let me say this again. Abigail didn't betray her husband. Her husband betrayed her because his actions were going to get her sons killed. He couldn't be reasoned with, and David was about to bring death to the home of Nabal and Abigail. Joseph said the evil planned against him being sold to the Ishmaelite uh, slave traders, landing in prison, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, forgotten by those he had helped while in prison, and then finally released after two plus years. He said all this was God's plan, and it worked together for good. And the end result was to save many alive during a severe famine that had struck the Middle East and North Africa at that time. Now we know from Romans 8.28 that all things, say all things, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now all things means all things. Therefore, all things includes evil things. All things includes being disrespected, being disparaged, being attacked, being oppressed. God can work all those things together for our good and bring good out of them, even when there is nothing good about them. Now, therefore, our first reaction doesn't dictate our response because our first reaction is most likely going to be of the flesh, as we see here with David. Now, let's keep going. We read an extra verse, but let's read uh, 25 once again. We'll read on down to 31. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be his neighbor. And now this present, which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, speaking of Saul, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord, your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. Obviously, she knew David's backstory. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause 
or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Now, obviously, Abigail is a very wise woman. And her petition with David begins with a respectful plea as she calls him Lord, recognizing that he indeed is the Lord's chosen king. She says her husband is rightly named and folly is with him. Folly means foolishness or moral wickedness, which are frequent companions, even as we see here with Nabal. She says to David, I, your maidservant, didn't see the men who came to seek out Nabal. And I have answered your request with this present to the young men. Now, she specifies the young men for a reason. And these are very carefully chosen words by this very wise woman, as it would have been improper culturally for Abigail to put herself in a higher position than the future king and name herself as his provider. So she assigns the gift to David's men. Then she pleads for forgiveness. She acknowledges David's divine calling a second time. She says she knows that he fights on behalf of Israel and evil is not present in his actions thus far. We know that uh, there's going to be evil down the road in David as well. And she then acknowledges that Saul is wrongfully pursuing David, but David is, and here's an interesting phrase, bound in the bundle of the living in verse 29, meaning that the Lord is going to preserve and protect David's life and God is his defense. Aren't you glad the Lord is our defense as well? Then in verse 31, she circles back to what she said in 26. At this interruption, keeping him from going and avenging by his own hand was a divine appointment, and it has held David back from doing something that was wrong. Now, Romans 12, 21 reminds us, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? With good. Now, Abigail shows some courage here. She goes on to say in verse 31 to the emotion-driven future king of Israel that killing all the males in her household would be shedding blood without cause. In other words, as much as a blockhead as her husband actually was, his actions were not a capital offense. And therefore, David would have been in violation and his response based on the flesh would have been disproportionate to kill Nabal and all the males in the household. Now, again, back to Galatians 5 and the uh, comparison between the flesh and the fruits of the spirit. In 19 to 21, we're told now the works of the flesh are evident which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, what's the next one? Murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice, keyword there, practice such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, David's practices were not these things, but his pride-based emotions were about to cause him to commit murder. And the Lord sent a very wise woman to interrupt uh, his process of moving through his anger. So not only did Abigail not betray her husband, she also did a great service to the future king. She talks about when And uh, it comes to pass in verse 30 that having done good for him, 
that he won't have this grief, or verse 31, he won't have this grief hanging over his head of a very uh, poor and brutal decision. Now, there is going to be a winner every time between the battle in our own lives, between the flesh and the spirit. So let's add this to our arsenal of understanding. Here's our third consideration. Listen, here's why we need to do so. Choose uh, walking in the spirit, obviously. Walking in the spirit has benefits rather than consequences. Walking in the Spirit has benefits rather than consequences. Now, anybody here ever do something reactionary that they wish they hadn't have done? Oh, three or four of you are honest. Yes, we've all been there, done that. We've all had those situations where a knee-jerk reaction was an inappropriate reaction. And I can assure you that regret is never awaiting us at the end of a decision to walk in the Spirit and not be drawn into and away by the desires of our flesh. David stopped. David listened. And we're going to see in a moment that David responded and his flesh was interrupted and doing what was right before God was reintroduced. Now we're told by James in 4.17, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. David was about to sin. He was about to do something evil, even though he had proven through the Engedi encounter that he knew how to repay evil with good, with the situation with Saul in the cave and cutting off the corner of his garment. Now, Abigail's actions brought David back to his senses, and therefore he benefited from the fact that he avoided the consequences down the road from this act that he had intended. Now, there may be some here tonight who are on their way or in the midst of retaliation efforts. And I want you to consider this tonight. When you retaliate, You waive the rights to the benefits of walking in the spirit and expose yourself to the temporal consequences of walking in the flesh. Listen, when we become faithless, God remains faithful. Amen. When we fall even seven times, we can rise again. But what Abigail says to David is wisdom that we need to heed. As she said, this intervention has stopped you from something you would later regret and grieve over down the road. And the same is true for us. So let's not let the flesh push us into and determine our reaction initially. Let's make the decision uh, to follow after walking in the Spirit. Let's look at 32 to 44, and we'll wrap things up from this wonderful chapter. You guys still here? 32. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice and blessed are you. Because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who have kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light, no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning, when the wine had gone from Nabal, that his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. 
Then it happened after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So when David heard, David, <laughs> David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth and said, here's your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste, rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel's, and so both of them were his wives. It's too bad this uh, chapter didn't end a little bit further upstream. But Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. Uh, David recognizes the Lord God of Israel had arranged their meeting, and he spoke a blessing over Abigail because she kept him from avenging his own, uh, avenging himself by his own hand. Now, David wasn't saying in verse 34 that had she not stopped and he was going to actually hurt Abigail personally or directly, what he was saying is that killing her sons would be hurtful to her. And she had stayed David's hand by her intervention. And David received her gifts, spoke over her the blessing of go in peace. And he said to her, I have heeded your voice and I have respect for your actions. Now, Verse 36 tells us about a rather interesting scene. And we have to wonder how often this scene had been repeated in the marriage of Abigail and Nabal. And she tries to talk to him and yet he's drunk and he's feasting like he himself is royalty, which tells us in part at least why he had such a low view of David. David was out with his uh, army, his ragtag band of soldiers, so to speak, and wandering throughout the wilderness, being pursued by Saul. And therefore, Nabal thought himself, because of his wealth uh, and great riches, that he was a better man than David. Now, when he sobered up in the morning, Abigail told him what she had done and what was about to happen because of his actions. And he had a heart attack, and ten days later, we're told, the Lord struck him, and he died. Now again, Romans 12, 17 to 19 reminds us to repay no one evil for evil, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says who? Says the Lord. Now, we have to ask the question, why would it be wrong for David to be the vessel of God's vengeance when vengeance was carried out and was part of the Lord's plan and the death of Nabal was included in that as well. I think our last point is the answer, at least in part. What David did would have swept through the land like a wildfire and the rumor mill would have been raging and there would have been great consequences in David's rulership for his flesh-based actions. Now the other question that comes to my mind from these verses is why would the Lord take such extreme measures against Nabal when Abigail had pointed out that David's reaction to Nabal's disrespect was actually an overreaction? So why would the Lord carry out what David had hoped to do in the flesh? And the answer is really quite simple. 
at least for us here tonight. Are you ready for it? I don't know. I don't know why the Lord did this, to be honest with you. And it's rather interesting that we see situations like this that often cause us to scratch our heads and say, what in the world is going on here? Well, here's what we need to remember. We need to trust that God knows what he's doing. Listen, if there was ever a place for an amen without coaxing it out of you, that was it. David even said in verse 39 that the Lord had kept him from evil. And then he turns around and blesses the Lord for returning the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. Now, when we come across situations like this in Scripture, we have to remember what it is we know about our God. God is love. God is good. And he's always right. So therefore, because he is omniscient, the Lord who knows the end from the beginning, he knows what Nabal would have done in the future. And thus we need to remember that God acts and operates on a plane that is past our understanding and does things that we cannot find out with our finite minds. Now, the transition that happens after uh, Nabal's death is kind of like a soap opera begins to play out. And David sends proxies to ask for Abigail's hand in marriage. And then he marries Ahinoam of Jezreel. And then Saul is reintroduced with the mention of David's wife, Michael, her having been given to another man in an attempt by Saul to sever the familial relationship between he and David. And later we're going to find out that uh, David demanded that Michael be given back to him. Now, thinking about our last two chapters, I want you to consider this. We have it in Getty, a good decision by David in sparing Saul, followed by a bad decision by David and Maon to kill Nabal and his sons. Yet this bad decision is interrupted by Abigail, and a good decision is then made not to avenge by his own hand. And this is followed by a bad decision to propose to Abigail because David was already married to Michael. And this was followed by an even worse decision to add Ahinoam to his list of wives. Now, this brings us to our last feature of recognizing that in the battle between the flesh and the spirit in all of our lives, there's going to be a winner every time and we can choose which side wins. Here's the point of recognition we'll close with tonight. Listen, walking in the spirit is a lifestyle, not a weapon. Walking in the spirit is a lifestyle, not a weapon. Now, here's what I mean by that. We're going to be in battle against the wants of the flesh to self-preserve, to avenge. And we therefore must decide to walk in the spirit as the difficulties, betrayals and disrespectful circumstances of life take place. But here's the thing. If we're already walking in the spirit, we don't need to get in the spirit when those situations arise. And they surely will arise in all of our lives. And listen, walking, here's the point. Walking in the spirit is not something we do when needed. It's something we do all the time. It's not like girding a sword, sheathing the sword, repeating this process over and over and over. We are to walk in the spirit all the time. And Ephesians 6, 10 to 17 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench, what's the next word? All the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, think about this. Things like what happened between David and Nabal come unexpectedly into our lives. We're surprised by some of the things we encounter as God's people. And surprisingly, these types of situations tend to be emotionally driven rather than guided and directed and protected, therefore, by walking in the spirit. Now, here's the point of our last point. It's hard to put on spiritual armor when you're in a, an emotionally charged situation. And that's why it's important to have it on already. When that unexpected situation arises, when that attack comes, when that disrespect is encountered, and when the disparaging comments are uh, thrown at you. If we already have the armor on and the shield in hand, we're able to quench all the fiery darts of the enemy instead of saying in that moment of time, what did I do with that shield? What did I do with that uh, protective element of walking in the spirit? And we can say that figuratively, David kept taking it off and putting it on, taking it off and putting it on. He was losing the battle against his fleshly desires, his desire for self-preservation, as we talked about in earlier chapters. And now he wants to retaliate against someone who insulted him and challenged his position in essence. And he was making poor decisions even when poor decisions were preceded by good ones. So here's our last admonition tonight. Let's keep the armor on. Let's be walking in the spirit all the time and be the winner every time in our battle against the desires of the flesh by walking in the spirit. Somebody say, amen. Amen. Father, we are grateful for our time and your matchless word once again tonight. We are thankful for the things that we have seen and learn the examples that you present to us in Scripture. Thank you for presenting uh, those people we admire in Scripture and see you work through mightily with all of their failures and falls and struggles and stumbles, just like we have in our own lives. So, Lord, help us to, in the moment, not be driven by emotion, not be reactionary, but rather make the decision, interrupt the flow if necessary, as Abigail did so wisely with David, so that we can make the decision not to avenge by our own hand, but rather to stand, having done all to stand, with our waist girded in truth and our feet shod with the gospel of peace. Help us to do that wisely as we encounter those surprise moments in life that are quick to get us in the flesh. Help us to already be in this spirit that we not fulfill what our flesh wants to push us to. Thank you for this awesome chapter. We pray your blessing on us now as we go. Help us to apply what we've learned. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.